0: Well, good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. And I just want to let you know we had a great baptism service last night, 26 from our church family were baptized. Some were family, some were young children, and some were older. And it was a great, great party. We'll give you a highlight of that coming up here in the next week or so. And so um, on this Thanksgiving weekend, we love celebrating God's grace in many ways, and one of the ways we're going to do that is just by giving back to people uh, in need around the world through our partnership. So I hope you've come ready to give for that uh, Thanksgiving offering, which I'll tell you more about in just a bit. It was about 20 years ago, but it seems like yesterday, that I rushed down the hallway of Lori's family's home, where mom had asked me, Lori's mom asked me to just come and Look at Dad. It had been about a year. He was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, and it was a slow but uh, encroaching disease that we knew would take his life one day. And that day, there was a significant turn. When I rushed into the room, Dad was seated on the edge of the bed. He was sweating profusely, and what we all noticed is his lips were blue. And so we did what any of us would do. We rushed him to the hospital. And as we got to the hospital and settled into the um, emergency room, we quickly found out that he was intubated. And the doctor came out and said, you know, if he'd waited any longer, he wouldn't have made it. And uh, Dad did end up dying about eight, nine months, but we were so grateful to have that time together. I don't know if you've ever been there, but we know the possibility is there, isn't it? Where some just emergency, someone's health, someone's life could weigh in the balance and we could be part of the mix where we would be called upon to make a, a quick and decisive decision that could save a person's life, right? And if we've ever been there, um, we're, we're just praying that we're doing the right thing. If we ever get there, we're praying that we'll have the wisdom and the whereabouts to know what to do to save someone's life, right? I'm not sure if we've caught up that there's a, a parallel for someone's spiritual life. That we could actually be doing life together with people whose spiritual life hangs in the balance. They may not actually even know it. And we'd be called upon to be an agent of grace used by God to help someone move through that really perilous spiritual time. So you know what I'm talking about. Physical death, but I'm talking about now a spiritual time. And I feel like as we're working through the book of Galatians, which is a letter to these churches in this region called Galatia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that that's That's the situation that's gripping Paul, that he sees his brothers and sisters who began the race with God well, through faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And he was really concerned that they were going to chuck it all away and turn away from God, even though they weren't thinking they were doing that, by going down a whole different path that they would forget that the, that the gospel that brings us in to a relationship with God is the same gospel that moves us forward every day of our life. And so there's a sense of urgency. He's trying to get their attention. He'll use words like, I'm astonished at what's happening here in chapter 4, in, in chapter 1. I'm astonished that you're deserting the gospel he calls about, you're, you're confused about the gospel. In chapter 3, where we are this morning, he's going to use words like, you're foolish. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I mean, can you imagine if I agreed this morning and say, I just want to say, you guys are a bunch of idiots, and why are you so foolish about how you are living <laughs> your life? And you go, thank you, I'm going to go find another church. <laughs> but, right, there. Right there's, there's stuff going on, and it's subtle, but it's huge. And there's spiritual lives hanging in the balance. And so it's like a wake-up call. Come on, you guys. What are you doing? So grab your Bible. We're in Galatians chapter 3. And he's been reminding the church that if you're now to transfer your trust from 100% on Christ, this promised son... To your own performance in keeping the commandments of God, oh, man, you are really confused, and you are going to walk away and desert not just the gospel, but the God who loves you. So Galatians chapter 3, Galatians is in the back of our Bibles. It's after the book of 2 Corinthians, before the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. Use your table of contents if you need to. So if you were here last week, you remember that I put this little kind of mathematical equation that I think is really helpful for understanding the construct and what's going on in Galatia and what actually happens today in our lives as well. And here's the equation. Jesus plus anything equals nothing, zero. Okay, so say that with me. Jesus plus anything Equals nothing. Zero. Nothing. That's what's going on. That's what they're being tempted to do by these people who've infiltrated into the church, these false teachers who've come from Jerusalem who are saying Jesus is great. It's not like they're saying Jesus isn't the Son of God. Jesus is no, they're just they're saying Jesus is great. He's just not great enough. You need more. You need Especially for these people in Galatia who are Gentiles, they're not Jews. They don't know the law. They haven't been keeping the law. The men haven't been circumcised. They're going, it's all well and good. You got Jesus. But you need to go back and pick up the law too. This Jesus plus. That's what's going on there. And I think if I could put the, the message today in a sentence, it'd be this. The gospel that brings us to Christ is the same gospel that makes us more like Christ. The gospel that brings us in to the relationship is the gospel that brings us onward into this relationship. We come through the front door in this relationship with God through Christ and we can't drop faith that unlocked the door, so to speak. Actually, this gift that God even gave us. It's not like we had the key. He gave us the key, faith. And it's not like we get through the door and we go, well, I don't need the gospel anymore because I'm in. And there's a little bit of thinking sometimes like, well, the gospel is just like that ABC stuff. And, and I got the ABC stuff, and I've got my faith in Christ, and so I'm just going forward. You don't drop it at the door and then pick up something new as you go on with God, this thing called performing and working out your relationship with God in such a way that you feel good about yourself, you feel good about your relationship based on your performance, not Jesus. So this performance promise construct is a good one to be thinking about as we catch up with Paul in the middle of it. And it's confusing. It's confusing. So we need to slow down. We're not going to get through all of three and four, but we're going to get through a lot of it. Okay, so let me tell you how I think it breaks down. In the first part of chapter three, he's going to give them a history lesson. He's gonna give him a history lesson why we can't chuck faith and why we need to keep moving forward in our life with God, always on the basis of faith in Christ alone. And he's gonna say, he's gonna give him a history lesson. He's gonna go back in verses one through 14. He's gonna point back, first of all, how, how did you how did you enter into this relationship? He'll use the phrase, how did you receive the spirit? How did you get this new life in the spirit? We're now you are God's child. how that happen? Was it works? Was it faith? Then he's also going to say, oh, not, not only how did it happen for you, but man, we all know that we trace back our, our faith in God to Abraham. How did it start for Abraham? Did it start for Abraham by keeping the law or by believing the promise? So he's going to do a history lesson, all right? Then in the following verses, in verses 15 through 18, he's going to give a theology lesson. He's going to talk about what we just sang about that God is true and his word can be trusted and he doesn't renege on his word. And so he's going to say, yeah, the promise came first and then the law came, but the law doesn't renege the promise. God's contract, God's covenant with his people is as binding as the contracts that we make with each other. That's what he's going to do in verses 15 through 18, which then raises the question in verses 19 through 25, then why did God give us the law? What's the purpose of the law? He's anticipating the obvious kind of response to the people then. Well, what do I do with the law? And what do we do with the law? And how do we think about the law? Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? And so it doesn't matter how we treat each other. It doesn't matter how we fill out our expense report. It doesn't matter if I cheat on my SAT or ACT this, this year. Is that because I'm all under... What's my relationship to the law? What was the purpose of the law? He's going to go there, and he's going to wrap it up by reminding us, since we are children of the promise, we're kids who call God Father, Daddy, Abba. So let's act like heirs, he said, not like slaves. You go down the performance, the the doing-the-work stuff, that's the stuff of a slave, and you never find freedom in that. Live in the grace of God, in the freedom of God, that he's adopted us as kids. All right, so that's where we're going. You ready? All right, verses 1 through 5, Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, I told you. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's speaking about when he met him and preached the gospel of crucified Christ. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Now he's going to ask five questions. And these five questions, I want you to notice the first question and the last question are the same question. So when we see that, that's a bookend. The scholars call it an inclusio. It's included. It's like the main question. See if you can see the repeated question. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by keeping the law, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? There's that promise performance. You see it? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again, I ask, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So here's the history lesson. How did you come into this relationship? How did you receive the spirit? Did you receive the spirit? Because you were working so hard and you kept the law so perfectly that God said, man, you are in. I'm giving you my spirit, the promised blessing to Abraham, and we're tight now. Is that how it worked? Or was it not, in fact, that when I came and I held out the good news of God's love for us in his son, who was crucified, who died on the cross in our place, and you believed in it, isn't that when you received the Spirit? Oh, yeah, that's when I received the Spirit. Yeah, that's when it was. So he's just just reminding them again. How did you come in? So if you came in through faith, why would, you, why would you think that you could continue in this relationship that started only by faith in Christ alone with anything less than Christ alone? Why would you think you needed anything more if that's all that you needed to get in the door? Like, that was a little thing. It was a huge thing. That God would send his son to die in our place. So he gives him a history lesson. Well, the history lesson goes back further, though. Now he picks up the story Of Abraham, verse six. Now, when we're reading about Abraham, we got to remember that Abraham is the father of faith, right? So Abraham is also the hero of these people from Jerusalem who are law keepers, right? So they look at Abraham. Abraham's the first guy in the Bible who gets circumcised, and so he's like their hero. He's like stud Abraham, right? This is the guy. This is our guy. So it's really significant that he goes, let's not just talk about how it started for you. Let's go back to the very beginning when God entered into this relationship with this guy who was far from God, this idolater from earth. Let's be reminded how Abraham came into the relationship, right? That's verse 6. So also Abraham believed God, and it his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Understand that that those who have faith are children of Abraham, not those who are circumcised, those who have faith. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. This is another reason he's going back to Abraham, because he's saying that the Scripture saw that God would make things right not with Abraham's family through faith, but the Gentiles, all the nations, all the other people, the worldview back then in most of the Bible is there are Jews, the descendants of Abraham, and there's everybody else, the Gentiles. Same word for the nations. Same word, Gentiles, nations. So he's going back to Abraham and saying, oh, by the way, when God made the promise to Abraham about this promised heir coming and blessing to all the families, this was the gospel and, and it was the gospel for all people. That, that's what he's saying. Verse 9. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, someone might have been thinking that the history lesson would have said, you know, in keeping with these false teachers, well, that Abraham kept the law, and that was credited to his account as a good thing. And God said, good enough, you're in. They could have expected, the, the scriptures say, and Abraham obeyed God and was circumcised and circumcised his family. And based on circumcision, he was declared righteous. It wasn't that. It was his faith. And so, too, all who believe. So he gives them a history lesson, Right. The history of how they came into this relationship, the history of how Abraham. How did Abraham come? He believed. What did he believe? He took God at his word. What specifically was God's word to Abraham that he believed? It was the promise. Here's what he promised back in Genesis 12, and we'll catch up to it in Genesis 15. He promised him that I am going to give you land. So get up out of where you're living here, and I'm going to take you to a land that will later be described as a land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make your name great. You are going to be an awesome person for all of history. You're going to be a great man. I'm going to bless you so that all the families of the world will be blessed, and I am going to give you an heir, and through this heir, you are going to have descendants that are innumerable. It's like counting the stars in the heaven, the sands of the seashore, just beyond measure. Well, that was a big deal for Abraham, especially the part. By the way, his name's called Abram at the beginning of the story, and then he becomes, he names Abraham. So it was a big deal for Abraham to get this promise about an heir because he's 75 and he doesn't have a child, let alone a male. He doesn't have an heir. Sarah's 65. Trust me, they wanted kids, they couldn't have kids. So when we pick up the story in Genesis 15, which verse 6 is quoting from, that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, it's been a while. He gets the promise at 75. Isaac isn't born the son of promise until he's 100. And this is somewhere early on. It's before Ishmael's born, where he kind of takes matters into his own hand and goes, well, maybe God needs some help here, and I'll go have a child through Sarah's, you know, servant Hagar. It's before that. So it's somewhere like five, six, seven, eight, nine years later. And here's what we read. You can see it up on the screen. God, again, speaking to Abram. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. That's who Eliezer was, his servant. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here it is. Here it is. It's quoted four times in the Bible. It's was like a really huge verse. Abram believed the Lord, took him at his word, and he, God, credited to him, Abram, as righteousness. So then it raises a question. All right. If that's how we come into this relationship with God, through faith alone, in the promised Son alone, by God's grace alone, then why, why isn't it that that works in keeping the law and the commandments, and there's like a lot of them, 613 in the Old Testament. Why, why, does it, why doesn't that do us any good? Why, what, what's deficient about the law? So he, he unpacks that in verses 10 through 12 by basically saying the law curses us. The promise brings blessing. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that all the families of the world will be blessed through this promised son, through Jesus. The law, the performance route, curses us. So look at at what it says in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law, let's just say all who rely on their own performance, are under a curse as it is written. Now he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law, who trusts, who has faith, that word rely, who has faith on the law, right, is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. The law is based on obedience, keeping the law, the promise, in trusting the one who promises and the one who's promised God and his promised miraculous son, our Savior. So why can't the law save us or move us forward in our life with God? Because it doesn't remove the curse. It doesn't remove the curse. It can't because we can't... Perfectly keep the commandments. And so one of the things we gotta catch up with is that what we what we love and worship about Jesus is not only did he die the death that we couldn't possibly die, not only did he die the death that we deserved, but he lived the life that we can't live. And that is in perfect obedience to the Father. Remember how Jesus sums it all up. All the commands, all 613. Get, get whittled down into two, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like unto it, but it's still the second. Love who? Your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did that right every day of his 33 years walking on this earth. And every day we try to obey all the commandments. We just keep running into the fact that I can't do it. Honestly, we run into, I don't even want to do it. This is stupid. I think there's a better way. Well, like that, I mean, think about it. The whole story begins with there's one commandment. Hey, Adam, you got everything. You got this unbelievable life with me, with each other, with all of creation. There's only one thing. This is one thing. And it's a good thing that I'm telling you this, because if you, if you don't heed what I'm telling you, it's going to all go crazy bad. There's like one commandment. We're going, man, if, I mean, if there was like 413, probably, we could probably do this. One commandment. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And What do they do? Man, that looks good. Maybe God's, maybe he's messed up on this one. I think we know better. So the the law can't move us forward because it never takes us out of this position of being cursed. When we're cursed, it's because of our sin, not because God had a bad day and our sin separates us from God. And so there is no life with God. Sin separates us. And so going back to performance is walking away from the life that is ours through the promised son and his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus Christ. So how can we be freed from the curse? Glad you asked, Paul says. Verse 13, Christ freed us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written. So whenever you see that, you guys know this, but just in case you don't. For it is written, it's, just, it's, a, it's a cross-reference. It's quoting now Old Testament Scripture. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. On, on, like Think of the tree of the cross. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of God. Of the Spirit. So Paul says when Jesus died on the pole, on the cross, he was cursed. So people who died on the pole uh, were people who were being punished, capital punishment. Think about like, like an electric chair. Okay, that they're cursed. They, they've done something really, really bad to warrant that. Well, he's not just saying, Paul's not just arguing here that Jesus is cursed because he ends his life falsely accused of something he didn't do, but because he died on a cross, he's cursed. No, he's he's also saying that this one who, Jesus Christ, who died on the Roman cross, yep, he's cursed according to the law. He's hanging on a pole. He's on the cross. But at the end of the day, he's cursed because what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin on our behalf so that the righteousness of God would be ours. So here's like a really important thing to remember. When Jesus dies on the cross, he dies in our place for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve, that we might receive the righteousness of God through Christ, through faith in Christ. So it's like we stand before God, and he's a judge. He says, man, you owe me a ton. You, my fear, you are so far in debt. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to forgive your debt. Well, that's great. Forgiving the debt gets me to zero. But Jesus did more than that, and the cross does more than that. He takes on our debt... And then through faith, he gives us himself, his perfect life before the Father, his righteousness. So I go from how many billions in debt to zero. But I didn't even stay there because through faith in Christ on the cross, I have all of his righteousness. So it's so wild and it's so beautiful when Jesus sees us because our faith is in Christ. He actually, we're covered, we're hidden, we're in Christ. He doesn't see me in all my brokenness. He sees my faith in Christ and I'm wrapped, I'm clothed in Christ's perfect life and love and truth that he sees Christ when he looks at me. I have his righteousness. And so how are we freed from the curse? He says, well, it's not like God says, well, you know what? I cancel the curse. No, the curse was real. It's as real as the law of gravity. You sin, you're separated from God, and you will die. And the curse is death, physical, spiritual. And he didn't just say, well, I just cancel that idea. No, he, he said, I satisfied the curse and forever obliterated it through my son who absorbed the curse. That's what happened on the cross when darkness came. That was just a reminder, just physical reminder that he became sin. And at that day, even the sun hid as the son of God took on our sins. And so how does the curse get reversed? Through Christ, who died on the cross. So we can't swap faith in the promised Son for performance because the gospel that brings us to Christ is the same gospel that makes us more like Christ. The way in is the way forward. In in verses 15 through 4-7, he's going to quickly give a second reason why the gospel that brings us in is the same gospel that moves us forward. And this has to do just with the word of God and how it's true and how the promise is binding. So have you ever had that where someone's made a promise to you? Maybe it's the employer, and they said, hey, you know, this is gonna happen. I'm gonna give you this bonus and this, that, or a good friend promised you. Actually, someone actually gives you something It was really, really nice, and then all of a sudden, the deal's off. Like, what happened to that? What happened to that? They take it back They don't keep their word and you're just going, Well, I don't have any recourse. It was just it was a promise, but I guess they changed their mind. And it stings, right? Well, God doesn't do that. He keeps his word. And so that that's what he's saying here in verse fifteen and following. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, all right? So a legal binding contract, right? You just can't add to it willy-nilly and take away from it, right? It's binding. So it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular, the promised heir. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later. This is good to remember. When Abraham gets the promise, it's 430 years before Moses gets the commandments, the Ten Commandments, if you will, and all the rest. So the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant, the promise, previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. And so the promise is still in play. That's why you keep hanging on and trusting the promise. And the promise is the promised seed. The promise is Christ. It's Christ. You keep trusting him. You keep hanging on to him. He is our only hope. So then it raises the, the last question. So What was the deal with the law then? Why give us the law? Look at verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? And he says, well, it was added because of the transgressions until the seed, until Christ, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was given through angels. He's talking about the Ten Commandments and that law. Mosaic law was given through angels and entrusted through a mediator, Moses. And a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is alone. So he says, look, here's why the law was given, because of sin. So what does that mean? Well, just think about this way. Do you think there's things that are being done that are flat out wrong today that are, that are actually not illegal. Let me say it again. People are doing bad things that hurt other people, take advantage of other people, but it's legal because they found a loophole, if you will, within the law code, right? Is that, is that possible? And when we find out about something, when legislators find out about something like that, what happens? What do they do? Like We're going to draft a law on that. That's busted up. We're going to take care of that right now. He says, the reason... The law exists because the sin exists. So, all right, so there's a sense where the law, if we, and we, he doesn't unpack it all, but in the Bible, it'll say, well, the law reveals the heart of God. All right, that's one of the reasons we have the law. It tells us about God's perfect character. Uh, another thing is the law came to curb sin and remind us that we are sinners. In fact, Paul will say, you know, there's a funny thing about the law. I wouldn't have known I was a coveter unless the law said, do not covet. But in Romans 7, 7, because the law says that, I, I, I un- understand that. Or in Romans 3.20, we read this. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. What's the purpose of the law? It reveals God's heart. What's the purpose of the law? It reveals my heart. <laughs> it shows me I'm not a law keeper. And then it shows me that I need a savior, because if I'm not a law keeper, and the requirement of the law says cursed is every is anyone who does not keep everything written in the law. I'm under the curse, and I don't want to live under the curse, and I don't want to die separated from God, and I don't want to miss out the blood. So I need a savior. So the law, he says, and he goes on in that chapter, say, is like this tutor. And the tutor isn't the teacher, but the tutor was a slave who'd come alongside your kid, and he'd take your kid to school, and he'd take him back, and he was responsible for this kid throughout his growing up years to help him grow up to be a mature adult. And the law is like a tutor that takes us by the hand and it reveals to us that we need a Savior, and it says, let me introduce you to Jesus, the promised Son, that's the purpose of the law. And so the gospel that brings us in is the gospel that moves us forward. So he says to his friends, you drop, you drop the promise, trusting in the promise, and switch to now this performance mindset. You 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 just so you know, you're moving from a position of sonship, of being this heir. This, this child of God, and you're moving into this construct of being a slave. One is free. One, you have this relationship with the spirit in you that you've received through faith. You cry out to God. You know you have a relationship. You call him Daddy, Abba, Father. The other is, man, he's, he's my, you know, I, I, I've got I've to do all this stuff. I've, I've got to serve it. I'm a slave to it. I, I, I'm not freed. I'm under this weight of trying to always perform and perform. So he says, look, you guys, you've entered into the relationship, you're sons and daughters of the king. Why would you chuck it by re- returning to being a, a servant, a slave of the law that can only condemn us? So there is this guy in our family. His name was Adolf Pretzler. We, meet, we met him through a, a friend of ours, Elo. And I was just this little kid. So um, Ella was this beautiful young woman from Switzerland, and she came to America, and she worked for a very wealthy family on the North Shore of Chicago. We got to know her. Ella's family would go out to a ranch in Colorado where she met Adolf. Adolf, too, worked for a very wealthy family. He was an Austrian, and his family was from Eastern, Maryland. You can look this up. And the Stewart family... Owned what is today called the Pink Castle on Chesapeake Bay. Hundred, hundreds of acres of farmland, and then just these unbelievable, like Spanish castle like buildings and underground tunnels. And, uh, you know, he had a yacht with all these people and gardeners by the dozens and fountains and grounds, and it was like unbelievable. So Adolf worked for these, the Stewart family. He was the ambassador to China at one point the, the Stuart family. He worked for this family for years and years and years. And Adolf was 60 and Ella was 35 when they got married, and that was, wow. But it was great. They had kids, and he lived a long time to see his kids grow up. But the, the great story about Adolf was the Stuart family that he was serving for all these years didn't have any kids. And he inherited the whole thing. And he moved from being a manager of the estate to, to an owner. He, he moved from being, if you will, a servant of the Stuarts to an adopted son of the Stuart family. Now may, uh, imagine, if you will, and I don't know have all the timing. I was pretty young. Imagine, if you will, that he was having a conversation with uh, his new bride, Elo. And uh, they would already kind of made the deal. They hadn't passed away, and so it wasn't all his, but it was just a matter of time that it would be, that he would just kind of tell the story. And in earshot, they heard him tell the story that, yeah, it's, it's mine because I, I worked so hard. And it was like, you know, if you're, you or me or Stuart would go, well, you sure did work hard, but that's not why we gave it to you. We gave it to you because we love you like a son. And so you, you see that position of, of the performance, how it would be an offense to someone who goes, well, that's not, this wasn't a paycheck. This was a gift. We didn't have to give it to you. We paid you well all these years. We didn't have, but we wanted to give it to you. Why would you turn the gift into something you earned? Why would you take the beauty of the gift and make it all about you. Do you see where I'm going here? Now, now uh, imagine even crazier if the Stuarts die and, and Adolf continues to function as if he's still the servant and not the owner. That's nuts, isn't it? It's nuts. May God help us to live in the freedom of being sons the king. Let me tell you, way, way better real estate than the pink castle, and it's a pretty cool place, (laughs) of the whole universe, the one who frees us, the one who died for us. So let's hang on every day of our life. Don't ever think, oh, that was just the, the front door stuff. That was just like at the beginning stuff. No, this week, We need to hang on to Christ with everything that we have because he's all that we need. When we're tempted to go, well, you know what? I'd feel a lot better about myself if I just made a little bit more money, if I had this toy, if I had this thing. Let's not lose our way. Let's not swap it out now in thinking that we have identity, security, significance, meaning in life, and anything other than our relationship that is ours by the sheer joy of God that he pursue us when we didn't desire it or even deserve it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. Remind us of the bad news, that we'd relish the good news. Forgive us for not doing backflips and getting goosebumps over your great love for us because we think we're doing something for you. Lord, we want to do everything for you, but let it be from a heart that has been transformed by grace that we would really live that truth out that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, not of our works that we would boast. It's a gift of God. And so may we understand who we are. Masterpieces created in Christ Jesus by your grace through faith to do good things, not for your approval, because we have your love. The things that you've called us to do, the things that you prepared before this world began, let us do it well as your kids. In Jesus' name, amen.